Warning, the following presentation is rated R for Reformed. All theological content will be accompanied by the five solas, strong and explicit Calvinistic language, persuasive argumentation, and repeated references to sovereignty. This episode may be dangerous for your Arminian friends and family. You have been warned. Alrighty, well, welcome to the Logical Belief Ministries podcast. Um, as you could tell by the intro there, we are going to be having a discussion today on <laughs> Reformed theology again. Uh, there is an incident uh, that uh, has occurred uh, <clears throat> over here uh, at the Logical Belief Ministries, and uh, we want to discuss this. So uh, for those of you that are new out there, uh, my name is Jason Mullett. Uh, you can visit our website at logicalbelief.org if you want to uh, send me a message, a word of encouragement, a question, uh, or you want to, uh, as uh, we're going to discuss today, if you want to come on this podcast and discuss um, theism, Christian theism, if you're an atheist, if you're, if you're an anti-Calvinist, uh, you want to come on here and discuss why uh, we are wrong about what the Bible teaches about God's sovereignty and salvation, uh, the doctrines of grace. Uh, if you have contention with those, uh, you can come on this show. Uh, you're welcome to uh, send me a message, and uh, I will schedule uh, for you to have some time on this show. So you can send those emails to jason at logicalbelief.org. Uh, if you want to listen to this podcast, uh, your favorite uh, podcast catcher, just search for Logical Belief. You should be able to find us by searching the iTunes database, and you can subscribe to the podcast there. You can also find us on YouTube. Uh, you can see both the audio and the video uh, for the podcast if you just go to the website, logicalbelief.org, click on podcast in the top right menu, and uh, you can see the previous episodes there. You can see the, both the audio and the video. So you can listen to it however you want. So before we jump into today's episode, let's have a brief word from Ohio Fire. Ohio Fire is coming to Columbus, Ohio, April 8th and 9th. Hosted by Striving for Eternity Ministries, Ohio Fire will encourage and train Christians to mature in their faith and share the gospel with the lost. Hear Phil Johnson and Dr. Thomas White on the topic, The Word of God. And after the conference, you'll have a chance to hit the streets of Columbus with trained team leaders. Ohio Fire, April 8th and 9th. For details and to register, go to ohiofire.org. All righty, so... <laughs> Today, in today's episode, what we're going to do is uh, I want to talk about two things. Um, <clears throat> talk a little bit about, uh, at the end of the episode, uh, we're going to play Kent Hovind's response to a question I had asked him on his King James-only position. I just thought his response was, <laughs> um, I'm not going to make much comment on it, I'm just going to play his response because I just believe it. Uh, it uh, it just where it where it stands right there is all that is needed, um, but we'll make some brief comments on that. But what I wanted to discuss uh, today was a while ago back. I have to look here. Uh, I think it was the first part of March. Might have been March first. Um, I had an individual, and he posted his name, so I'm going to give his name. Uh, we've been communicating back and forth on email. And uh, he posted his name on the comments uh, on my blog. So his name is readily available, so I'm going to just use his first name in this uh, discussion. But uh, you can go out and see his comments there on my blog. 
and uh, his name is Andy, and he uh, did a drive-by on my blog, and he uh, took uh, some contention with some of the articles that I've written. Uh, one is entitled, um, Is Calvinism Biblical? And he, uh, he made two comments. I'll just go ahead and read his comments. Uh, he said, no, Calvinistic doctrines uh, weren't contrived. They're sincere interpretations of scriptures, just that they're sincerely wrong. I refer you or your readers to Arminians.org. So it, it appears that this guy, Andy, may be a contributor to uh, this website. Uh, he made some comment in the dialogue we were having via email uh, that uh, he was going to use our dialogue and place it on Arminians.org as an example, I guess, of, uh, of you know, you know, those, those uh, I think, arrogant Calvinists is the way that he put it. So uh, he also posted on my, um, uh, on my blog, um, on, a, on an article I wrote, Is Faith a Gift from God? And he wrote, uh, absolutely, faith, like all good things, is a gift from God, James one seventeen. But like other gifts, either human or divine, it can be rejected, asserted, asserting or affirming that faith is a gift. It does not necessarily lend support to Calvinism. So basically what he's saying here is, you know, God offers faith, um, but uh, if you don't uh, place your faith in that faith, uh, then... then uh, uh, you know, you can reject that gift of faith from God. So we'll, we'll, we'll deal with some of this. But uh, what I did is when he made these comments and was posting links to Arminians.org on my blog, I said, okay, well, you know what? If you're going to do drive-bys like this and you're going to make comments on my blog, what I simply wrote is, would you be willing to come on the podcast and defend your assertion um, that Calvinism is sincerely wrong, and I also wrote, defend your assertion that salvation is ultimately determined by the free will of man. So I then sent him an email, and I'm going to go ahead and transition the screen so you guys can see these emails. I'm just, I'll just read them. We'll just, full disclosure right here, this is the entire conversation. Um, let me actually change the view here, so hopefully you guys can see that. Um, I'll zoom in there a little bit. And I'm zooming in on the wrong thing. Okay, let's try this again. You can tell we're professionals here. So, um, I, uh, wrote him an email and I said, Andy, you made some drive-by comments on my blog that Calvinism is sincerely wrong and that faith being from a gift, a gift from God does not lend itself to Calvinism. Would you be willing to join in a public discussion on the podcast defending your assertions? Um, he replied to me, and he said, Thanks for the reply, Jason. Well, anything is possible. I've never been involved in a podcast before. What are the particulars, where, when, and how? So he responded to it. So I responded to him and said, We could do it uh, via either a Google Plus Hangout or Skype. Either works. The interaction would be made publicly uh, on the YouTube channel and podcast feed. You have made the assertion that Calvinism is sincerely wrong and that faith being a gift from God does not lend itself to Calvinism. We can interact and have a discussion on these topics. We can do this either on a Saturday morning or evening, whichever works best for you. And then I said, by the way, uh, what church do you attend? Do you have a doctrinal, doc, doctrinal statement that you hold to? And the reason I, I do this 
is I'm not going to have a discussion about the sovereignty of God and salvation if a person um, rejects, for example, the deity of Christ or uh, rejects the Trinity. We have more fundamental issues to deal with at that point. So if, you know, whenever I'm going to have a discussion with somebody on these topics, um, I, uh, I want to know what their beliefs are. So he did reply, and he said, A Saturday morning should work, though not tomorrow. I'll have to figure out my schedule. I attend North American Baptist Church in Toronto. You can see the state. You can see the NAB statement of faith here, and he linked it. And my personal statement of faith, adapted from the Evangelical Free Church before I joined the NAB, can be found here. So I checked out his statements of faith, and um, you know they're they're fairly orthodox, but they're you know the the general uh, where they're not uh, you know they they don't clearly they're not a reformed statement of faith. That that's for sure. So, um, but uh, they were orthodox in the Trinity and the Christology. So. Um, yeah, I'm willing to have a discussion. I would like to have a discussion with this uh, individual, Andy, on this topic. So what happened is, uh, as you guys, those of you guys who are listeners to the podcast, you're well aware we'll be doing a series on uh, Anabaptism. And uh, I've had some atheists contact me and say that they wanted to be on the show. And so I was... I. I was going to wait until we're done with the Anabaptist series, and then I was going to maybe have the atheists on, and then maybe Andy on after that. Well, it didn't work out this weekend to shoot our last episodes on episode on the Anabaptists, and actually, just uh, to give you guys a little bit of um, a heads up with what's going on with that, uh, my friend Kevin is actually that who has been on those shows uh, discussing Anabaptism is going to be interviewing a conservative Anabaptist uh, preacher. And he's going to be asking him some questions, and uh, we're going to go over those responses on the last episode on the Anabaptists. So this week, since we weren't going to be shooting that episode, um, I decided to, well, let's see if I can, I can uh, get this interaction, this dialogue with the atheists going. So I messaged uh, both of the atheists on Wednesday, and... I asked them to come on the show on Saturday, uh, today, and um, I waited uh, until late Thursday, had not heard a response from either one of them, so I decided, uh, well actually no, it looks here like I emailed, uh, let's see here, I emailed Andy here, it says 9 a.m. on the 17th, so no, it was actually 9 a.m., I uh, emailed, so I, I waited, uh, the next day around 9 a.m. and I had not heard back from the atheist so I decided to email Andy and just to see if if he might be available to come on the show uh, since the uh, the atheists didn't seem to be coming through uh, I, I hope to have uh, both of them on there's two atheists that have contacted me uh, they they were the ones that contacted me and they wanted to be on the show so um, hopefully uh, that's something that does happen here in the future but so I just emailed Andy, and I said, Andy, would it work for you to have a discussion on Calvinism this Saturday? I'm working on getting some atheists scheduled for this weekend, but if that falls through, I would like to have a discussion with you. The broadcast would be 45 minutes to one hour, and we can shoot for starting sometime from 7 a.m. to 11 a.m. Um, Eastern Daylight Time. 
Let me know if it works for you. If the atheists get back, get back with me, we will push this off another weekend. Uh, you will need headphones and a mic on a computer to join the broadcast. I'll be setting up the discussion as a Google Hangout. I will send you the link to join. So he responded. Now, as you recall in the previous email, he did respond with, uh, you know, the message that, you know, he, he would be willing to, it seemed like he was uh, willing to come on and have this discussion. So he said, sorry, G uh, Jason, I have family this weekend. I'll remember to pray for your broadcast with the atheists. You got guts, brother. So I just uh, responded. I said, thanks for the prayers. Uh, to God be the glory. Uh, the atheists have not got back with me yet. This was... Um, the next day, this is Friday morning at 8.30 a.m., responded to him. The atheists have not gotten back with me yet this weekend. They're, they were the ones that contacted me and wanted to have a discussion, so I'm not sure what that is about. How about Sunday at 2.30 p.m.? Does your family event conflict with that? Let me know. Thanks for your time. And then he responded, and he goes, uh, Good morning, Jason. In advance of a podcast between you and me, what would you consider the primary passages on election that you'd focus on in a one-hour discussion? So it seems to me, as I'm reading this email, he is definitely willing to come on the podcast, and he wants to know exactly what passages we'll be focusing on. So I uh, responded, and I said, well, Andy, right here, here's my response. I said, Andy, I will likely use any verses in the following article. This is my article that is Calvinism Biblical. Um, I have um, many of the the passages of Scripture. I have uh, the uh, acronym TULIP there. I have a section on the sovereignty of God, and I just list all kinds of biblical texts. And so I just said, I'll likely use any of the verses in the following article. However, I'm most likely focus on John 6, Romans 9, Ephesians 1, uh, Job 42.2, Daniel 4.34-5, Isaiah 46.10-11, Psalms 35.6, Proverbs 16.4, Proverbs 21.1, Proverbs 19.21. These would be the verses and passages that would get the most focus. Um, is there any passage that you would like to focus on? And I said, i.e., 1 Timothy 2.4, 2 Peter 3.9, which are very common Arminian texts that they try to use. And so, you know, if those are the ones that he wants to talk about, you know, let's, let's get those out, let's exegete them, and let's uh, look for consistency. And so I responded to that with him, and then he responded with this giant diatribe. Uh, it's where it kind of started. Um, so he goes, ironically, Ephesians 1, I would like to focus on. The two you mentioned are good, along with Matthew twenty three thirty seven. So he wants to talk about Second uh, uh, Peter 3, 9 and 1 Timothy 2, 4, but he also wants to talk about Matthew twenty three thirty seven. And we'll talk about that text here in a little bit. Uh, and also he wants to talk about John 3.16, and we'll also talk about that um, here in a moment. It says in conjunction with the term world in John's writings, which is the Greek word cosmos. So um, uh, well prepared <laughs> to go over uh, with Andy on that particular topic. But I want to read his response or what else he wrote here. And uh, we'll, we'll just... Um, We'll go through this, and then I will address it. We'll just go through the rest of the email conversation, and then I want to start addressing this publicly, and I'll, and I'll tell you why. As you, You'll see why I'm addressing this publicly uh, as we go up further through the conversation here. So um, not, not going to respond to these things. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about this. But, uh, 
But uh, the first thing he says here is philosophically, this is important to exegesis. I would also argue that biblical, while biblical re revelation is paramount, that revelation has come to human beings whose default stance based on experience would be to believe in libertarian free will. Wow, that is a loaded statement. Um, I do not mean to imply some tug of war between scriptures and human experience. Um, yeah, actually, you you do, but uh, we'll, we'll get into that. Uh, this is about exegesis, giving, uh, given that God has revealed himself to creatures with moral and rational default settings in order to communicate his will to them, he would have to use terms that A, expose unconscious human bias, and B, reveal what our perspective should be. In other words, to communicate effectively, God can't simply make random statements about, say, justice, if in fact humans have a screwed up concept of justice. Wow. Are, are you really saying that human beings don't have a screwed up concept of justice? R really? Really? Have you read world history at all? Um, so we'll get back to this, but I just had to make a comment on that because he did that. We would go on assuming that our faulty definitions and fail to understand him. God would first need to let us know that we have a wrong definition of justice and in turn proceed to give us the right definition. Uh, in fact, scripture does do that. Uh, some go, same goes for other key terms in the election debate, such as choice, will, sovereignty, and election itself. Defining terms is basic to all communication. I think you'll agree with that. Of course I would. Um, in that mean, I randomly... If I randomly weighed into a reform group and said, I believe in predestination and election, that would be very misleading on my part because the rest of the group wouldn't know that I'm mentally importing an Arminian definition of these terms. Thus, I would, wouldn't actually be communicating with them, right? Absolutely. I agree with that. So applying this universal principle to exegesis, however, I'm going to jump back to that statement. You don't really believe in predestination and election. Um, you believe that man destines himself and man elects himself but you don't believe in divine predestination and election let's just get that clear unless you want to completely redefine the dictionary terms of those words um, but you don't believe in divine predestination and election so applying the universal principle to exegesis I'm a huge proponent of examining progressive revelation to see how God introduced theological building blocks to his people over the course of time to eventually lead them to a full-blown canonical theology. Um, Arminianism is not a full-blown canonical theology. Let's just make that clear, and we'll point that out here. But at key points, when introducing a new concept in embryonic format form, did God need to correct a previously held human understanding or something, or he was able to start where the human recipient was ready already at, conceptually and merely provide them with the information they didn't already have. This has huge ramifications for the election debate, so it is something I'd want to spend a few minutes on precisely because it would inform our handling of the very texts that I have, you and I have listed. In this vein, important base passages would be Genesis 2, 15-7, despite the fact that on the surface they do not have no obvious link to the issue of election. So that was what he said in response to my question, you know, what passages he wrote all that. Well, I'm not, I wasn't planning on having an email dialogue. We're going to have a discussion on the podcast. So I just responded very briefly. I said, sounds good. 
Are we on for Sunday at 2.30? I would recommend that we do a brief Skype call or phone call ahead of time, say about 2.10, before we jump into discussion at 2.30. If everything is, is a go, I will announce on Facebook and Twitter that we're going to be having this discussion. So now he comes back, and now his tune begins to change. It says, no, busy this weekend. Okay? I'm still not sure I want to do it at all. I'm confident with theo, uh, theo, I don't know, theologizing, I think is what he's trying to say, and my writing skill. I am more than comfy defending Arminianism, but doing a podcast? Kind of intimidated by that, especially if it's live. It's, com it's comparable to a public debate, something I likely wouldn't engage in. And so I responded, and this is where I think it got his hackles raised a little bit. Okay, that's all right. If you believe Arminianism is the true gospel and Calvinism is false, would it not be your duty to defend it? I often see this. Many Arminians will not engage Calvinists in public debate because the biblical errors in the, Cal in the Arminian system are exposed under the light of cross-examination. It's up to you, but you're welcome to come on at any time and defend your assertions. And this has been my personal experience with this, is most uh, anti-Calvinists and Arminians are not willing to have a back-and-forth dialogue. Um, I have so often gotten this in these discussions that, well, I'm just not good at debating. I know that my position, my Arminian position is right, but I'm just not good at articulating it. Um, and just the... I'm sorry, this is the typical response I get. You know, if, if you guys uh, say that that's not true, well, then come on the show. And Andy, if you have somebody else that's willing to come on, you know, they're, they're welcome to come on. We can have this discussion. If, you don't, if you're not comfortable doing it, that's fine. But uh, you've been acting like this whole time, like you're willing to have this discussion, and now when it comes down to brass tacks of actually getting it done, now you're backing down. Um, so this was that his response. And, and I thought this was so good. My wife and I were actually uh, quite humored <laughs> by his response that I, I wanted to, uh, just read this, um, <laughs> on the show here. Uh, so, uh, hold on to your seats. Uh, this, uh, uh th there's a little bit of emotional diarrhea going on here. So, um, <laughs> so, uh, this is how he responded to my email. Okay, you just revealed why I usually hate debating Calvinists. Their sheer arrogance and elitism. I have said plainly I'm confident with theologizing in my writing skill, and I'm more than comfy defending Arminianism. So it should be patently obvious that from that one line in my hesitation to do a podcast has absolutely no relation to an alleged Arminians will not engage Calvinists in public debate because of the biblical errors in the Arminian system are exposed under the light of cross-examination. Yeah, I actually stand by that statement. I stand by that statement. And so, um, once again, this forum is open. If you want to come on and have your position cross-examined, you're welcome to do so. So I do stand by that statement. That has been my experience. And most of you out there that are Reformed and have interacted with... Um, non-reformed people and in discussion with this will also have the same experience uh, it has only it it has only to do with my own personality okay that's fine but you did give the impression that you were willing to come on 
uh, in many uh, emails going back and forth. And so, um, you know, you can't fault me for thinking that you were willing to come on. Uh, and if you're not willing to come on, you know, it looks like you're a contributor to Arminian.org. Uh, you know, I welcome you to give, provide somebody else to come on. I'm willing to talk with anyone. I don't care who it is. Uh, I'm just a layperson. I'm just a guy that loves reading the Bible and studying the Bible. And I do believe this is what the God's Word teaches. So uh, I don't care who you bring on. Just, you know, I'm, I welcome anyone to come on and have a discussion about this. We'll just have a dialogue. We'll go over the text of Scripture. We'll exegete texts. And we'll go over them. And then he keeps on going. Uh, and your arrogance is revealed in another more subtle way, too. You phrase, if you believe Arminianism is the true gospel and Calvinism is false, implies that you believe that this debate is over opposing Gospels. Yeah, actually, I do believe this debate is over opposing Gospels, Andy, and I stand by that. Arminianism, consistent Arminianism, is a false Gospel. Now, do I believe all Arminians are unsaved? No, I've categorically stated that more than once. If you listen to any of my shows, uh, when I discussed uh, the five points of Calvinism, I made that abundantly clear that most Arminians are simply Arminians of tradition, and they are not consistent Arminians. I do not believe, Andy, that a consistent Arminian is saved, and I'm going to state that, because only those who trust in the work of Christ alone and do not believe it is any of their own merit that is the reason for their salvation and their right standing with God, only those who believe that gospel are saved now only a Calvinist can consistently believe in that now are there Arminians that trust in Christ alone and do not depend are not dependent and do not think that their own humility and their own righteousness is the reason for their salvation yes there are Arminian Arminians that do believe that and I believe that they are saved but their theology is not consistent with that belief so a consistent Arminian, one who does actually believe that their own humility, their own autonomous free will, the almighty free will of man, um, that, that their own merit of choosing God and humbling themselves before God is the reason for their salvation. If somebody truly believes that, yes, Andy, they are not saved. They are not trusting in Christ for their salvation. Um, so yes, this is, this is why this debate and this discussion is very important. Andy, we don't have the same Gospels. Okay? I just want to be clear on that. Um, implies that you believe that this debate is over opposing Gospels. It is not. Okay? Come on the show and defend the assertion that it's not. I will demonstrate to you that it is. Uh, it is or would be a debate over opposing models of election. Okay, For your information, we embrace the same gospel. And then he goes, salvation in Christ through faith alone. Okay, Andy, we don't believe the same thing with Christ alone and faith alone. You don't believe that it's the work of Christ alone that results in anyone being saved. Hebrews 10.14 For by one sacrifice he perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. 
you don't believe the work of Christ actually saved. You believe a person has to contribute some action of his own in order to be saved. That's not Christ alone. Christ alone does not mean, and I discussed this in my podcast on the five souls of the Reformation, Christ alone does not mean only that there is one mediator. It means that the work of Christ is sufficient for the salvation of his people. They don't have to contribute anything to that salvation. So you don't believe in Christ alone. And in fact, you also say here that salvation in Christ through faith alone. Okay? We both hold to justification by faith alone. I agree, but your faith is different than my faith. You believe that faith alone is that which is generated and started by man. Now you can say, well, faith is a gift from God, but man still has to choose God. Uh, Andy, choosing God is an act of faith. Choosing God is a humble act of repentance. Repentance and faith are gifts from God. And man does not initiate these things. It has been granted to you to believe, uh, Philippians 1.29. Um, John 6.29, it is the work of God that you believe. Acts 13.48, and all those who were appointed unto eternal life believed. So salvation is a gift from God, and faith and repentance are a gift from God. 2 Timothy uh, 2.25 um, let's actually, I, I should have that text memorized better than what I do. But it tells us that, um, or no, it's, uh, let's see here. Let's pull up this text. It tells us that, uh, oh, it's actually, there. here we go. Second Timothy, yeah, 2.25. It says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. So, Andy, if you see the order in this text here, that God must grant us repentance, metaneo, a change of mind. God must grant us repentance, which leads us to the knowledge of the truth. We don't come to the knowledge of the truth in order so that we can repent. We need God to grant us repentance so that we come to the knowledge of the truth. And that, Andy, is exegesis. That's what the text says. Um, so you don't believe in the same faith and the work of Christ alone that I do, Andy. Um, so in other words, you're equating your Calvinistic model of election with the gospel itself. And that, my friend, my arrogant friend, let's, <laughs> let's say this correctly, is idolatry. Andy, let me make this clear. If the Bible teaches God's sovereign election and God's sovereignty over the salvation of man, and that's what it actually teaches, and... Are you then saying that actually holding to what the Bible teaches is idolatry? This is why you need to come on the podcast and you need to actually defend your assertions. Because, Andy, the Bible does not teach human autonomy. And I can defend that assertion. It does not teach human autonomy, and you have erected that as an idol. But come on the show and actually defend your assertion. 
By the way, you just gave me great fuel for a post over at Arminians.org. That's fine. Um, we also have a podcast coming out on this. So, uh, so he then <laughs> responded with another one that uh, my wife and I find uh, rather humorous. But uh, he uh, <laughs> he just couldn't let it go. He had to, you know. Uh, he sent this first email at 6.37, and then um, at 6.45, you know, a few minutes later, he just didn't get enough out, so he had to send another email. <laughs> so then he wrote this, and I hope you guys can see this here on the screen here, but says, I, I have further to add that your very unfortunate, dismaying response typifies my experience with the Calvinist elites of whom I've encountered over, over uh, many over the years. As an Arminian... I never go around squawking Arminianism all the time and pressuring others to convert to my gospel. Hey, Andy, do you, I don't know if you remember this, but the reason we're having this conversation is you came on my blog and you posted on my blog. L let's just get that clear. Um... Convert to my gospel, treating them like second-class citizens of the kingdom, even as fake believers, if they don't. In other words, I don't act like a donkey's hind end about it. Wow, now I'm, now I'm a donkey's hind end. Calvinist elitists, however, are just the opposite. If you're not a Calvinist, you're a Pelagian, or some such. Okay, I'm going to hold to that, Andy. I do believe Arminianism, Catholicism are semi-Pelagian. I, I do believe that. Um, I believe they're synergistic. It's a synergistic system. Um, it involves work from man is required along with work from God in order for an individual to be saved. Yes, I do hold to that, and I will defend that once again if you come on the podcast and you're willing to defend your assertions. You've just demonstrated the real reason many Arminians void debating Calvinists. Yes. Okay, so here's the real reason. We generally don't enjoy migraines, often instigated by banging our heads against the wall. Yeah, Andy, I can understand why it's a little frustrating when a, when a Calvinist keeps pointing out your inconsistencies with the biblical text. It's probably pretty frustrating. Once again, you can come on the show. You're welcome, Andy. You're welcome at any time to come on the show and defend your assertions. Very happy to have you or any of your other friends from Arminians.org to come on the show and we can have a rational, calm dialogue about this. We can go over the questions. We can interact. We can go over the texts of Scripture and we can have a discussion. Um, but doesn't appear that is something that you want to do. So um, I want to go back to his original statement, because I want to address some of this. Um, the one thing that I want you to notice is that Andy's insistence here that that revelation has come to human beings that philosophically we just know we have libertarian free will. We just know it. Um, Andy, this was what Adam and Eve thought they had in the garden. 
they thought they had autonomy outside of God. Yes, Andy, I'll defend that assertion. I will defend that. That Adam and Eve thought that they could achieve godhood outside of God's prescribed will for them. That's called libertarian free will. It's called human autonomy. Thinking that we can reason and come to truth outside of God. So, Andy, you can't take your assumed libertarian free will and human autonomy and force it onto the text of Scripture. Because Scripture is abundantly clear. Proverbs 21.1 The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and he moves it like a stream of water. So you're doing it completely backwards. Your theology, your biblical theology should determine your philosophy and your anthropology. It should determine on, on the way that you look at the will of man. Andy, in Romans 8.8 8, it says that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They are not able to do so. That is not freedom. That's enslavement. Jesus says that he who is a slave to sin, uh, he who commits sin is a slave of sin. Slaves are not free, Andy. They are not free. They're in bondage. They have to be set free. Uh, in Romans 8.8, 8, I want to go back to that verse. It says, well, let's start at verse 7. It says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We also have 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural man cannot accept the things of God. Jesus tells us in John chapter 3, um, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. You're either in the spirit, you're either born of the spirit, or you're only born of the flesh. You're either in the flesh or you're in the spirit. You're not partially in some middle between ground that gives you the human autonomy to determine your own salvation. No, you're going to rebel. You're going to be hostile to God if you are in the flesh. You need to be born again. This is why Jesus said this in John chapter 3. You must be born again. Um, or you cannot see the kingdom of God. You will be hostile to God. You will not submit to God's law. In Acts 17, Paul tells us that God commands men everywhere to repent. It says here, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So are you telling me, Andy, that man is capable of, of submitting to God's command to men everywhere to repent. Now, Andy, if your assertion is is that it's not fair if God commands men to do things that they're not capable of doing, let me ask you a question. You do know Jesus' words as be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Andy, are, are you capable of perfection? Are are you capable of perfection? 
Peter tells us, be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. Andy, can, can you be holy like God? Do you know the holiness of God? Can you be holy like God? If you can't, and you admit that you can't, then your assertion that it's not fair or it's not just if man can't do it, then why does God command holiness and perfection? He does it to humble our hearts through the working of the Spirit to realize the law, as Paul says in Galatians, is the pedagogue, is the schoolmaster that brings us to the truth that we are incapable of doing this on our own. We cannot achieve the holiness and perfection of God. We need the righteousness of God imputed to us through faith in Jesus Christ, and that faith itself is a gift of God. Praise God that he saves and that he gives faith. Um, in Second Corinthians 5.21, one of my most favorite passages in the Bible, you guys have probably heard me quote this over and over, but... Um, for our sake he became sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That righteousness is that holy and perfect righteousness that God commands us to be like, but it is imputed to our behalf by Christ, by the work of Christ alone, and not by anything that we have done. I want to... Um, uh, briefly uh, mention, uh, go to some of the other texts that he mentioned. He mentioned, uh, um, uh, let me see here, what was the other verse he mentioned? Oh, Matthew twenty three thirty seven. I want to uh, pull that text up. Oh, there we go. So he mentioned Matthew twenty three thirty seven. This is such a common verse used by our um, Arminians. In this discussion, and what is is usually kind of funny is they most of the time when they when they use it, they actually misquote the text. Um, just just those of you out there that are reformed that do have discussions with Arminians, just watch for this verse. I've had Arminians personally. I've heard of other um, uh, reformed people that said they've had Arminians misquote this text to them, but I've I've personally even seen this happen. Uh, and I've had to correct people that they've misquoted the text. But um, uh, he used Matthew uh, uh, 23, 37. Oh, Jerusalem, this is when Jesus was um, was coming into Jerusalem and he wept over the city. And he goes, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How oft would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing now what most Arminians will do when they quote this verse they'll say oh Jerusalem Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it how oft I would have gathered you together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing so they will use this text that says that you know that that God desires um, every single person to be saved and that he wants to gather them, but they resist his will. And, and the almighty will of man resists the will of God. Uh, Isaiah 46.10, it says, I am God, there is none other like me, declaring the end from the beginning, I will accomplish all my purpose. So that, 
purpose that God, you know, God wants to save these people. He purposes to save them. He's the omnipotent, sovereign, almighty creator of the universe. But the almighty free will of man prevents him from saving them. So they'll try to use this text. Well, the problem is they're misquoting it most of the time. Uh, the text doesn't say um, how oft I would have gathered you together as a hen gathers her, but you were not willing. No, it says how oft I would have gathered your children. Jesus, this whole passage, if you read the context of the whole passage, Jesus is condemning the Jewish leaders for their hard hearts and for their objection to Jesus uh, gathering in their children as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. The Jewish leaders were opposed to Christ gathering in his own. And they were not willing that Christ would gather in his own. Um, they opposed that. But does the text here say that their opposition to Christ gathering in their children was successful? Were they able to um, refute and to stop the almighty will of God in gathering in? No, they opposed it. They were not willing. Um, but it doesn't say that Jesus was not able to gather in those who they were supposed to be the spiritual leaders over. They were given that responsibility, but yet they failed in their hypocrisy. And so um, that is one of the texts that he wanted to cover. Uh, the other text, oh, he wanted to talk about uh, John 3.16. Oh, it's the, the typical John 3.16 comment. So in John 3.16, obviously, um, we all know this verse, verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so the Arminians will usually insist that for God so loved the world, it's the Greek word cosmos, that this means, it's where we get our term cosmology from or cosmos um, from. So they will insist that this means here that God equally loves salvifically every single individual in that who has ever lived and so they would have to then to be consistent if that's what the text means that that God loved here at the time that Jesus said these words himself God loved with salvific love every single person who was in hell at that time so God has eternally decreed his own dissatisfaction and his own um, uh, pain in his heart for all of eternity he has decreed it because he desires their salvation he um, he's decreed it to happen and he loved them with the same love that that God loved the Apostle John and Moses with the same love that he loved Pharaoh and that he loves the um, uh, he loved the Amorites and the Amalekites he loved them with the same love that uh, that he loves uh, his sheep. Um, 
it tells us in the first chapter of Matthew that um, that uh, his uh, that Jesus came to save his people from their sins. So the thing that we have to understand is the word cosmos in Greek has a semantic domain. What we mean by semantic domain is it has multiple definitions that apply depending upon the context in which it's used. And I'll give you an example even in English. I mean, we do this all the time. Uh, even in English, we have words that have a fairly large semantic domain, and it means a different thing depending on how it's used. And the example that I, I like to use a lot of times is like the word space. When, when I say that, um, that, uh, that Mary just wanted John to give her some space, um, does that term space used in that sentence mean the exact same thing as the rocket ship hurtled through space on its way to Mars? Does, does that mean the same thing? No, the context of the usage of the word means something different. You could also use the word green. Um, she was green with envy, and the plant was green. Well, okay, does it literally mean that she was the same color as the plant? No, it has semantic domain. It has, it has different usages within its context. So if you are going to insist that in John 3.16, that it means that God so loved every single individual in the world who's ever lived with salvific love equally. And that's what that means. And you're going to insist that that's the, the definition of the term world here. Then you turn the rest of John on its head. In uh, John chapter 1, it says here in um, verse 9, it says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was come into the world. Did that come into every single person who ever lived? No, there it means the created order. He came into his created order. And by the way, that's the way that I look at John 3.16. God loved his creation, his created order. And he came into his created order. Now, there's other, you know, Reformed people that maybe look at it differently, but that's how I look at John 3.16. And I think it's a consistent way of looking at it. So, so... God so loved his created order, his creation. And in his creation, um, there are his sheep. And that's why he sent his son, to redeem them. But he also loved all of his creation because his son, through putting down sin and destroying death, will restore creation back to its original state where God said it was good. So... Um, God loves his created order, and because of this, he came into his created order. Um, was come in, So the true light, which gives light to everyone, was come into the world. He was in the world, he was within his creation, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. So we can see in this here two verses, 9 and 10 of John chapter 1, we see world used four times. Three times it, it's in using the semantic domain of God's created order, his creation, the, cosmo, the cosmos. And, but then one time it's in referring to the unbelieving world. The, the world, the part of the world that is the, the reprobate, the one who does not and refuses to believe, who remains in his sin. That was the world who didn't know him. Do we know Jesus? Yeah. Every single person who trusts in Jesus Christ 
for his salvation uh, does know Jesus. So we are not the ones who don't know him. Um, we also see in John 17, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus says in verse 9, I am praying for them. He goes, I am not praying for the world. So if world has to mean every single person who has ever lived, then Jesus didn't pray for every single person who ever lived. Here he explicitly says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but those for whom you have given me, for they are yours. So, in this text here, we see he's not praying for the unbelieving world. The same one in John 1.10 that I just read that, um, that did not know him. Those are not the ones that he's praying for. Let's go back to John um, 1 because I just want to keep on reading. In that same t passage that I was just reading, I read verse 9 and 10, but I just want to keep on reading. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. This is referring, referring to the Jewish people. But all who did receive him, so there were those who knew him, who received him, who believed in his name. They, they knew him, they recognized him. Jesus says, my sheep know my voice, they know me and they follow me. He gave the right to become the children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This destroys human autonomy. This destroys libertarian free will. In salvation, man has a will. Man freely makes choices, but his, he has, he's a creature. He has a creaturely will. Um, and when his will... His will is free. A creature's will is free in the fact that he freely makes choices. But he's in bondage to his nature. We make choices consistent with our nature. We freely make choices consistent with our nature. But we are not capable of making choices that is outside of our nature. God himself can't make choices outside of his nature. God's nature is perfect and good. So therefore, God cannot make the choice to sin. Our nature is in bondage to sin when we are in the flesh. And so we cannot do anything but sin. And that's why we need to be born again of the Spirit, uh, so that we can do that which is pleasing to God. Um, so there was, uh, I think that takes care of the verses that he mentioned. Um, so he mentioned Matthew twenty three thirty seven and John three sixteen. So... He said he wanted to go over Ephesians 1. I don't really know what he had to say about that, so I can't really address it. Um, but uh, I think uh, that's where we'll leave uh, the response to Andy for now, unless he, um, uh, I'll send him this uh, podcast, and we'll see where this goes. So I did want to go briefly over at the end of the show an email that I had sent to Kent Hoven um, in reference to his King James-only position. So I'm going to go ahead and just read the email that I had sent to him, and then I want uh, then I'll we'll listen to his response to that. I'll make some brief comments, and um, 
uh, we'll we'll go over that. So this is the email that I'd written to him. Uh, let me zoom in on that. Hopefully you guys can see this. You'll need to be looking at this in high def, I think. <laughs> so um, I wrote, uh, Dr. Hoven, recently on your YouTube channel, you've been making a particular argument for your King James-only position that I want to address. Your argument has been something like this. Why do you have to go to the Hebrew and Greek scholars to find out what the Bible says? Why do you need to trust what Hebrew and Greek scholars say the Bible says? Can't God preserve his word in the English so that you can know what it says? You then assert that God has done that preservation in the King James Version. I hope I have properly represented your argument. Please correct me if I am wrong. My question would start for you would start with this. Is it your position that the Chinese need the Bible, if the Chinese need the Bible in Mandarin, that it should be translated from the King James Version? If the answer is yes, then would not the Mandarin-speaking Chinese need to go to and trust English-speaking people to clearly know what the Bible says? If you are consistent, would this not refute your position that we should not have to learn the original languages or trust those who do not know the original languages to properly translate the inspired scripture for us? If the, an if the answer is no, the Mandarin Bible should be translated from the original Hebrew and Greek. Does this not refute your position that King James Version is the authoritative preserved word of God that should be used to correct the Hebrew and Greek? I just heard you say that in this video location, I link a video where he actually made that comment. If you say that the Mandarin translation from the King James is just as inerrant as the King James, could the Mandarin translation ever be corrected again by the King James Version if an English to Mandarin translation error were found? Which would be more authoritative, the Mandarin Bible or the King James Version? A final question for you. Is it your position that God did not preserve the scripture in the transmission of the text of the original inspired autographs and the Church of Christ had no reason for being fully confident in their scriptures until 1611. I would like to hear your thoughts. So that is the email that I wrote to Kent Hoven, and here is his response. Uh, Jason, <clears throat> recently on your YouTube channel, <clears throat> You've been making a particular argument for your King James only position that I want to address. Your argument is something like this. Why do you want have to go to Hebrew and Greek scholars to find out what the Bible actually says? Why do you need to trust what Hebrew and Greek scholars say? Can't God preserve his word in the English so that you can know what it says? You then assert that God has done that preservation in the King James. I hope I properly represented your argument. Yep, pretty close. Uh, please correct me if I'm wrong. My question for you would start with this. If your position is that the Chinese need the Bible in Mandarin, then it should be translated from the King James. Well, maybe they've maybe God preserved it in a bunch of other languages. I don't know. I don't speak. I, I want to just talk about this here just briefly. So here Kent Hovind says, well, he just doesn't know. Maybe God has preserved um, the Bible in other languages. Um, you know, maybe God has preserved it in Mandarin. Maybe he has preserved it in, you know, German and French. But notice what he actually ends up attacking. He, while he asserts that God may have preserved his word in other languages, he specifically attacks that God definitely has not preserved it in the original Hebrew and Greek. He knows that. He doesn't know maybe God has preserved it in other languages. 
but he definitely knows that God has not preserved it in the original Hebrew and Greek. Um, <clears throat> I'm not saying there, there might be a perfect Chinese Bible. I don't know. There might be a perfect French one, a perfect Spanish one. But definitely not a perfect Hebrew and Greek. He knows that, but he doesn't know. Maybe it's perfect in French and German, but definitely not the Hebrew and Greek. I don't know. Uh, ask, uh, uh, gee whiz, there's dozens of websites on that topic. Um, Gail Ripplinger, of course, avpublications.com, the 16, kjv1611.com. Um, just Google King James only and you'll find your computer will melt. Okay, there's pro and con. So, uh, but yeah, I would try, if, if there isn't one, I would translate into Mandarin from the King James. Why not? If the answer is yes, then would not the Mandarin speaking Chinese need to go to and trust English speaking people to clearly know what the Bible says? Well, they're trusting the translator, that's for sure. But they're trusting the word that the translator brings them. They're not trusting that guy for their salvation. They're trusting the word that God gave Wow. The inconsistencies, Bob, makes you want to wrap duct tape around your head. So I just revealed an absolute inconsistency. His argument for uh, why uh, we can't uh, use other translations other than King James is because we have to trust the translators. Well, A... He's trusting the King James Version translators. He's trusting that they did it right. He's trusting that they were inspired. But why should he have to go to Hebrew and Greek scholars to find out what the text says? Well, that's exactly what you're asking other people to do when you translate from the King James Version in English to other languages. You're asking them that to trust that particular translator and those who are English scholars and experts to go ahead and do the translation properly. But, you know, his main argument is is that, you know, he shouldn't have to trust Hebrew and Greek scholars. But, you know, non-English speaking people should definitely have to, though, trust English scholars. Just wrap duct tape around my head. Gave to them, and whether it be a... God could give his word in Hebrew and have it translated to sign language and Morse code and brought back to English and preserve it. Not a problem. We have a long paragraph with no breaks here, brother. Let me read this. Um, if you are consistent, this would not refute your position that we should not have to learn the original would this not? languages or trust those who know the original languages to properly translate the inspired scriptures. I think if I understand that question, I think I would agree that you could take the King James without studying Greek or Hebrew, take the King James and translate it to Mandarin and, and be fine. I, I think that's probably true. <clears throat> if the answer is no, the Mandarin should be translated from the original Hebrew and Greek. But where are you going to get this original Hebrew and Greek? I'd like, where is it? No, not one shred, not a speck, not a letter on parchment or uh, whatever is available of the originals not one so where are you going to get this paul notice this is exactly what i said notice he will attack that there's no way that there is a perfect there's no god has not preserved his word in the original languages of the original autographs but he's definitely preserved it in the english and maybe other languages but he definitely has not preserved it in the original autographs the ones that when when peter says in Second Peter one twenty one, he says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, 
but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So his his position is is that that the the languages that the prophets and the apostles spoke and wrote down as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit that there is what has definitely absolutely has not been preserved God has not preserved that it was corrupted 20 minutes after it was written we just have no confidence at all but a 1611 translation because he simply assumes his position to be true is has preserved that one was definitely not corrupted and we we know that that's the inspired word of God and you know other people should trust English scholars but God has definitely not preserved that which was um, uh, written by those who were inspired by the Spirit of God and wrote it in the original Hebrew and Greek and a little bit of Aramaic in Daniel said I think it's 2 Corinthians 2 or something that they were corrupting the Word of God this is while he's writing it so Paul could have written a letter to the Corinthians somebody 20 minutes later is changing it and corrupting it and you might get a one a really old manuscript that is corrupt 20 minutes after the original was written so no I don't trust older being better my best crazy I wonder if the King James could have been corrupted 20 minutes after it's, it was written the argument um, I just heard you say on the video that God you would use uh, you would correct the Hebrew and Greek from the English that is correct I said again this is March the 8th okay if you say that the Mandarin translation from King James is just as inerrant as the King James I didn't say that I said I don't know I think if I was going to do Mandarin I would have to learn Mandarin first and then translate it from English that's all I could do and I think God could preserve his word through poor little old Kent Hovind to do that um, so I didn't say it's just as inerrant I don't know if it's inerrant I wouldn't say my translation is inerrant that notice how the King James only position leads to the King James version translators being the ones inspired um, the original apostles and prophets they're the ones that scripture actually says what were inspired their work was not preserved, but the King James Version translators were inspired, and God preserved their work. And even Kent Hovind, if he did it, he might actually be inspired. Now, I think he contradicts himself here, just a second here, where he says, well, he wouldn't be inerrant. Okay, well, how could your translation be perfect if you're not inerrant? Uh I don't quite get that, but um. that's for sure. I would say the King James is okay. Um, uh, let's see. Could could the Mandarin translation ever be corrected again by the King James? If an English to Mandarin translation error were found, sure, absolutely, sure, change it. Final question: Is okay? It doesn't that refute your statement just a little bit earlier, where you said that the Mandarin translation could be perfect? So how can it be corrected by the English? So it is. You are actually holding up the King James Version as the absolute authoritative that would correct all languages, not just the Hebrew and Greek. So it goes back to my original assertion that for, for any other language, anyone who speaks any other language in the world, they have to trust English scholars and translators 
to to actually know what the Bible really says, because the King James Version can still be used to correct any other language. You know, folks, if this is the position that you hold, I would beg of you to abandon it. Abandon this position. It is not it is not it does not fit within the Christian worldview. We stand on truth. We have God has spoken in time. We have a foundation for knowing truth. And this, my friends, is not truth. This is not defensible in any way. This does not hold up to what Scripture has told us, that God has preserved his word. Jesus said not one yacht or one tittle will pass away until all is fulfilled. God has preserved his word. Now, do we need to engage in things like the science of textual criticism? Yes. Is that difficult? Yes. But I do believe that all original readings in both the Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic have been preserved by God. Now, does it sometimes take some work to find out what that original reading was? Maybe, but it's still there. It's for us to find out and search out. Your position that God did not preserve the scriptures in the transmission of the texts of the original inspired autographs and the Church of Christ had no reason for being fully confident in their scriptures until 1611. I didn't say that either, uh, Jason. Uh, there may have been some place where God's words were preserved. Uh, I don't know. There might have been uh, French or Latin, maybe the Latin. Now, there's two different Latins, the La two different Latin Vulgates, both claiming the name Latin Vulgate is my understanding. Okay. Oh, okay, uh, but Kent, let's be consistent here. You just said that it, the King James Version should correct other translations. So the Latin Vulgate that you have, that you're just talking about, that should be corrected by the King James Version, correct? So your position fundamentally is, is that God has not preserved his word. He's only done it in the King James Version, and he hasn't preserved it anywhere else. Because you have very clearly stated that it should correct all other translations, even something that's translated from the King James Version into another language, if it's found out the translator made a mistake, it should be uh, corrected by what's in the King James Version. So fundamentally, your position is that God has not preserved his word, definitely not in the Hebrew and Greek, because that was corrupted, according to you, 20 minutes after it was written. Um, so we definitely don't have that preserved. And you can't come up with anything else that is preserved, other than the only one that you say is preserved and you know is inerrant and preserved is the King James Version. Only one. So that then means, if you're going to be consistent, Kent, just hold to it. God has not preserved his word until 1611 when he re-inspired it. And the first time he inspired it, it only lasted about 20 minutes. And then it wasn't inspired, it wasn't preserved anymore. Our time is up. Eugene uh, from February 5th. Okay, that's, um, that's it with... Uh, Kent Hovind. So I would encourage uh, you out there, if um, if you've run into King James Onlyus, um, be gentle with them. Speak the truth to them. Um, give them the hard questions, though, that they need to answer. And uh, encourage them to read a book um, like um, James White's The King James Only Controversy, one of the absolutely best works on, on this particular topic. Um I also mentioned if you want to, um, uh, let me grab these books here. Uh, some of Michael Kruger's 
works on the Canon, um, I would encourage you to uh, check those out. Um, I did an episode recently on some King James only stuff, and uh, I mentioned his books. So you have um, The Canon Revisited by Michael Kruger. He also has some lectures on that previous episode. Uh, go and check those out. Uh, we can have confidence that God has preserved his word and that we have um, what is necessary for us today uh, uh, for salvation and for knowing the truth about God so that we can have discussions about how does God save, what is man like, and uh, all these other discussions that are are worth having. And um, even though in our postmodern world these are irrelevant uh, to most professing Christians today, these are important topics. It uh, defined the time of the Reformation, the Reformers, and we stand on their shoulders and we defend the truth of God's word and God's sovereignty to save as they did. So thank you guys uh, for joining us today. Uh, hopefully uh, this was helpful to you. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. Yo Valente. Don't you know that the unjust will not inherit God's kingdom?